Hi, everyone. I'm Paul Yeager. This is the MTOM Show podcast, a production of Iowa PBS and the Market to Market TV show. We are getting into a topic today that I have been very intrigued by for quite some time. I've been trying to get some interviews about this subject. It, it is something we know a lot about here in the Midwest, and that's hogs. But we're going to be talking about wild hogs, wild pigs that have ravaged crops, livestock, and other things across several United States and is something that's also in Canada. So if you're watching this in Iowa, Illinois, and South Dakota, you have to be worried about this issue both to the south as this problem migrates north and also to the north as it heads south. What does that mean? We're going to talk with Aaron Sumrall. He is the director of outreach, education, and research with a company called Pig Brig. It is a live trap. We'll talk about that, but we're going to get into the how bad of an issue this is, where this animal survives, how it got here, where it's headed next. The type of damage that it does is in hundreds of dollars per animal. And this is something that illegal hunting has also contributed to as making this problem, helping spread this issue across the United States. If you have any feedback for me, and if you do on this episode, Aaron has said he will gladly talk and do a follow-up interview. So if you have questions about anything on this topic, put them here in an email to me at paul.yeager at iowapbs.org, and we'll make a whole episode just about your questions. And I know I have a whole bunch too, so would love to hear from you. But now let's get started as uh, Aaron is joining us on the Texas-Louisiana border today. Aaron, we've had a ridiculously warm winter where we think 40s is great, but that's like cold for you right now, right? Yeah, it's pretty cold. I mean, we typically here where I'm at in this the, the, the deep south anyway, it's kind of tongue in cheek. We get our, our two day winter and go right back into summer. So it's uh, it's it's pretty standard for us to be where we're at right now. I don't like, though, your your summers. I look at heat and humidity and just go, no, thank you. I, I can handle heat. Humidity just drives me crazy. That's what we call the air you can wear. So it, <laughs> it, it doesn't seem to want to leave you. You have, are you from the area, uh, Texas, Louisiana, Mississippi? Yeah. Where are you from? I was raised in southeast Texas, about an hour outside of Beaumont. Oh, way down there. Way down there, yeah. What, uh, what was your background? Well, I was raised on a farm and, uh, and been, been on a farm my whole life. My, my whole family, I guess, lineage is there within 10 miles, basically, where my, my parents still live. And, and from early on, we, we, uh, we had cows, we had chickens, we had horses and just like what you'd find on a farm. But we also too were one of the spots that were early on with the, with the, the, I guess the attack, the assault coming from wild pigs. And back in the day, it was largely, uh, brought in just transported in basically like if you were to think of the the movie the old yeller whenever whenever we see that they put their mark on the pigs and they do what they do and they work those animals in the in the woods and that's what they did back in the day and and uh just with pigs being what they are they just decided not to stay where they were intended and uh and and then start partaking of the the mineral intended for the cattle for the or the the feed that was out there the the gardens that were around and so forth and so on and and they they quickly became a nuisance for us. So it was one of those things that that as I got older, it was it was a a, a challenge for no matter what we saw in agriculture. And uh, and whenever I got the got the opportunity to go to college and and work on an ag degree and then and then work on a 
a, a wildlife degree as well, it was the opportunity then to be able to merge the two schools of thought being ag and wildlife together to where we could combat a feral pig issue um, without trying to pose any undue task liabilities, anything like that on the farmer that's looking for that commodity to, to pay their bills and feed their family. In Texas, where where you grew up, um, I mean, was there, how long ago is this a problem? Is this something you've known about your whole life, Aaron? It is. Uh, it's something that, again, too, I think that, that whenever we start trying to put our thumb on really when it got bad uh, for where I was at was in the probably the early 80s. Um, up until that point, I mean, in, in, in a lot of the rural parts of the South, I mean, all over the United States in those rural parts, there was still a lot of folks that, that use that livestock species, even though it was an exotic wild spe- species, they depended on it as a protein source and, uh, and, and heavily uh, managed that population just for that. And then you start to look at the, the mid 80s, the early 80s, things like that. The economy shifted a little bit. Uh, there was more people that weren't coming back to the farm after after they graduated high school or college or whatever the case may be. And as that generation of people aged out to the point where they couldn't go out in the, in the woods and the, the brambles, the briar patches and look for these pigs. We took the, we took the, the, the foot off the, the, the management gas pedal for a pig and reproduction didn't stop. I mean, they, so they just exploded in population. And, uh, and now we've got the, the, the bomb that what we have um, and, and quickly moving to wherever, basically wherever they want to go. You mentioned the, the population explosion, the lack of uh, population control hunting uh, for those things. It's, it wasn't like a policy change that you no longer can do this, therefore this thing grows. This was just nature taking off. Right, because the pig, I mean, a wild pig, what we have in the States is considered a non-native exotic. So with that, there's no game laws that really govern that that animal as far as hunting seasons, anything like that. So basically... For all practical purposes, where the where the hooves of that animal stand, whatever property that the, those feet are at, that's who owns that exotic animal. If they move from my property to yours, now they're your your issue. They're your exotic animal. There's no ownership, so there's really not a lot of legislation that was in place that would hinder a lot of the management. Which that's that's something that's I guess we could talk that a whole different direction at another time. But it's one of those that now in, in much of the South, all over, especially Texas, to, uh, there's been some legislative changes that's been made to make it more, um, to give more options, I guess, to the land manager out there to be able to, to try to minimize those numbers. But early on, yeah, early on, we, it, was, it was managed heavily uh, with firearm. Um, and, and there were just a lot of people on the landscape with firearms that were looking for that protein source. And in the last, 30, 40, 45 years or so, there's been a substantial decrease in the number of people that are out there on that landscape. And it's got to the point where it's not subsistence hunting to look for that protein source. It's hobby or recreational hunting. And we know just through libraries of of research that there's no way that we're going to shoot our way out of a pig problem. So it's going to have to be something of an adaptive strategy uh, integrated at a a specific time based based on a prescription for each individual property. I want to get into the strategy for fighting it in a minute, but I, I, I want to go back to something you said at the beginning. How were these introduced? You mentioned the old Yeller uh, book, but w- was this something willingly brought to this country? It was. It, it, and if you want to get back into the, the historical side of it is back in the, the, the date that they really put on there was about 1539. 
And DeSoto was the one that got tagged with bringing them into the into the Caribbean, which come up through the the Florida Keys and into Florida and so forth and so on. Um, but regardless of who gets blamed for that, um, they were brought here as a livestock species. As people started to colonize the country from east moving west, they brought them in as a as a as a livestock species to to be able to easily transport that species with them. Well, as that transportation was going east to west. Sometimes it could be a weather event or it may be a season or something of that nature that would hold up those wagon trains as they move through. And and whenever that situation passed and they were able to get back on track again, many times they weren't able to collect all the livestock species that they dropped. Pigs being one of them, cattle sometimes got left behind, but but they were basically dribbled along the trail and, and seed populations and they just exploded from that point on. And then there were some other population spikes that happened throughout the United States um, that that we saw a really huge increase. And one of those was back in the 1930s, whenever uh, and and you think about the Dust Bowl, the Depression and things of that nature in the 30s. But one of the things that in that economic downturn is that people still at that time, some had expendable income and they were willing to pay for their hobbies. So what we saw in Texas and a lot of the other southern states is that traditionally in that time time frame, track size was really, really large. So there were people that saw the opportunity as a landowner to lease out their property to these individuals that had um, uh, expendable income for hunting opportunity. Well, part of the thing, just like today, whenever you go in there for a hunting or recreational opportunity, you don't want to just sit around the campfire and tell lies. You actually want to point and, and go hunt something. So we saw in the 1930s with the increase in, in private hunting lease occurrence uh, is that we also saw a number of wild pigs that were being brought into these locations to increase the shot opportunities, those recreational pleasures. So that was a big increase in the number of, of pigs that were there. And then whenever the the men and women come back from the from World War II was another unbelievable population increase because you think about the economy whenever whenever World War II was over, the economy was booming. We were we were really, really doing well. And instead of those folks, when they got off those ships coming back from overseas, instead of going back to the farm and, and, and picking that plow up or that 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 shovel, they went to the urban population centers to follow the, the, the jobs, to follow the good paychecks. Well, now that ex, that expendable income is in their pocket to go buy food off the shelf rather than going back to the to the to the brush and that in the brambles in the woods to look for something to eat. And again, we took the we took the foot off the gas pedal of the the management on that species. And it's just unbelievably, I mean, it's there, there are a fascinating species and I don't say that with, with uh, a, a passionate thought in my mind, as far as good, they are fascinating in the fact that they are unbelievably reproductively efficient. They are adaptive to any situation that you put them in and they're un, this extraordinarily intelligent. So they, they're the, Basically, the the bomb, if you wanted to say, of an exotic species that can occupy anything that you anywhere you put them. It's not like it's not like the exotic uh, the, that needs protection. The animal that needs the protection right. of like a bald eagle or a, a dodo or what you know whatever the animal is that needs this thing can adapt. And Absolutely. And when and when you say in the out migration off the farm, so basically eyes and ears of people. Uh, that, you know, this boar, I'm going to take care of this thing tonight. When there's no right. one to see that, it just one becomes two, becomes four. It's compound interest of problems. Very quickly. 
Yes, very, very quickly. And and now we're seeing it too. And you look at the at land ownership trends across the country. Everyone likes the opportunity to own land. There's just unbelievable benefits there of owning your own land. And and one of the things that what we see that was in that expansion of pig populations across the country is that the the number one limiting factor for pigs is water. So you look at a, at a, an arid environment, uh, whether that's a rocky environment or just flat land that you would find in Kansas or Nebraska or something like that. One of the things that, that typically it's devoid of is water. Well, whenever we have the, the tent, the trend that's going on now for the last 15 years is a heavy influence on land fragmentation is that whenever somebody buys a piece of property, if it is, if it doesn't have what they're looking for, they immediately put that on there. And if they buy a piece of property for any given reason and doesn't have water, well, they're not putting wells in the ground to, to water pigs. If they're buying land for agriculture, they need to use it for crops or for cattle or for whatever. And they may be buying a piece of property for, for, the, for the native wildlife species. But the indirect beneficiary of all of those decisions is going to be a pig where we can definitely see a quick expansion in those, those harsher areas just because of the, in, the the introduction of water wells, because now if you think about whenever water wells are put down, how far apart are you going to put a water well? Well, if you've got livestock, you're going to put water wells close enough that if you have a cow that gets between two water wells, she can make it to one of those water sources before she dies of thirst. Well, if they're close enough for, for livestock species like that to traverse the, the, the landscape, pigs can do it in a fraction of the time. So whenever you look at that, that those harsh environments, pigs can go into those areas and flip over enough rocks to find enough grubs and beetles and bugs and so forth and so on just to exist until they wait for those 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 plentiful resource times of the year. And they'll they'll crank out a litter of pigs in a very short period of time. So that fragmentation is a big issue. So not only uh, can they reproduce quickly, they'll eat anything can operate on right. minimal water. Uh, so yes, a lake, a river, uh, a watering tank provides right. a problem. Um, we know they're detrimental to crops. Are they detrimental to other livestock? You mentioned the cow that uh, might be between two sources. What's the, what's the nature battle there? Well, when we start looking at native wildlife populations, it's pretty catastrophic because I mean, any, anywhere you go around the world, if it's an if it's a native population there, there are other native species there to control that 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 number. What I mean is basically that you've got the coyotes here to control rabbits. You've got the or, or excessive deer numbers or so forth and so on. There's no natural predator for the pig. So basically, whenever we get to the point where pigs have weaned and and 35, 40 pounds, there is not a, a natural predator that we have that's native to North America that's going to uh, see that pig as a food source to the capacities of reducing numbers. It's just not going to happen. So the, and the, the challenges then that pigs pose on existing wildlife is that we know, and again, too, going back to just libraries of research out there that shows that, that pigs are just unbelievably catastrophic on ground nesting birds like quail and turkeys. Uh, you can decimate a population of those bird species in a very short period of time. Their life expectancy or life range is not that long, and it doesn't take very many egg clutches to be lost before you devastate that population. Now, one of the things that we can draw somewhat of a correlation to on the larger species out there is based on an agriculture knowing 
we know just that, and I'm talking from from research in Texas, is that before I started work for Pig Brig, I worked for Texas A&M University. So we have to base everything on research, is that that we know in the state of Texas that the pig, the, the wild pig, is the number two predator on kid goats and lambs only behind the coyote. Well, you know, yeah, it's a it's a further distant second. It's not like knocking on the coyote's back door that they're going to overtake them, but it's still they're the number two predator and on that those, those livestock species. The reason that we that I bring that up is that we can quantify the loss of livestock attributed to wildlife or to pigs because we know we started with. Now, my question is is how many deer fawns were born in the county that you're at right now last spring? There's no way of knowing. No that. one, no way to but know. We look, you're right. If there, but there's if there's a way for us to look at this and say, okay, a kid goat or, or a lamb is going to be roughly the size of a deer fawn whenever they're born. Well, if a pig is going across the landscape and just happens upon a a deer fawn that's bedded there, that deer fawn doesn't stand a chance. So it, it's it's going to be. Uh, detrimental in every capacity than what we see in native wildlife. And then also, then you think about this as well, is that we're talking about the, the species out there with a heartbeat. Now let's talk about the species out there that doesn't have the heartbeat. When I'm talking about plants, is that we've got native plant populations out there that if you can't grow the plants, you can't grow the animals. Well, whenever pigs come in and just because of their uh, omnivory, as far as the dietary preference, plants are about 80 to 90% of a pig's diet. And, and whenever we look at that, that unbelievably high level of plant matter that's in their diet, we see pigs quite often change the whole, uh, the whole ecosystem in a given area or, or a, a region there because of what their preferences are. They busted up the ground. They're, they're tearing things apart that our native species are depending on. So if you think about it like this, is that what do, what do turkey poults feed on? Wild born turkeys or wild hatched turkeys. Wild hatched turkeys are heavy on the on the bug populations. What's there? Well, whenever you have pigs that come into an area and they decimate the native vegetation, well, that insect population was evolved to feed on a given plant base, a plant community. Whenever you alter that plant community substantially, you're going to obviously alter that insect population there as well. And so now we we see some other extenuating situations where pigs have impact on there. Now, all of this to be said is that one thing about research is the more that we think that we know about a species, the more doors it opens up to say, we really need to explore this a little more. So we know some, some macro findings out there that we can definitely put our thumb on as far as pigs and their impacts and so forth. But as far as to really get down in there and hit it with a fine tooth comb, there's just so much more research that's needed. It's the old adage, Aaron, in academic life. The more you know, the less you know. Absolutely. Right. Is what you're finding. Uh, Aaron, right. I want to, is there a plant particular that is targeted? I mean, is there something in that diet? Is it corn? Is it, do they like a soybean? Do they like a sorghum plant? Uh, or is it just anything that's, as you said, non-heartbeat? <laughs> Right. Well, one of the things they do have some tendencies and preferences and things just like anything else would. So if there's that that given crop as far as agriculture production is concerned, yeah, they'd rather eat a, a, a eat corn over soybeans. But what's going to happen is if you're if you're in any part of your agriculture rotation where it's going to be a heavy plant of soybeans that year, yeah, they're going to eat those soybeans as well. Um, 
the 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 areas that they have rice. You're going to have them concerned about busting rice levees down and, and losing your water and and so forth and so on. The other places that we see that that they're changing plant communities pretty pretty uh, substantially are on your large producing your large seed producing trees like your oaks and your pecan. Uh, those those seeds there, those acorns and those pecans are extremely high protein, uh, and they're in a in a perfectly packed up little nut. So whenever you've got those large nuts, they are high protein, they're high quality. They're going in. Pigs will go into an area and decimate that seed production where we're seeing a, a, a decrease in regeneration of some of those large seed producing plants in those areas where those pig populations are just out of control. So if you want to keep a lot of your native plants, you need to make sure that you, you manage those, those pig numbers accordingly, or, or you're going to be left with whatever is a general plant. And, and we got general wildlife species. We got general plant species. You're going to end up with all of those, those types of species, which is going to just decimate your biodiversity, both plant and animal. We have, you, know, you mentioned deer earlier. Uh, I mean, there'll be places that will put large, tall fences up to keep deer from hopping into, say, uh, an apple orchard or some right. type of fruit tree. Is that even, is a tiny fence going to handle, be able to keep out this animal? Well, the, the funny thing is, is that when we talk amongst our, uh, I guess, as far as researchers and land managers and everything else, that fence question comes up quite often about possibly fencing pigs out of sensitive areas, breeding locations, nesting locations, riparian zones, and so forth. And uh, in the in the, 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 the tongue-in-cheek commenter that we always refer to is, man, any fence that will hold water in will hold a pig. So, you know, we don't have a fence that's going to hold water. So it's just the fact that it's going to be anything a pig can get their nose under or through. Eventually, they're going to go, go, go through it, go around it, go wherever. Obviously, too, then we have the concerns there in place that that if you have those those fences in certain areas, yeah, you get a tree on it, it's going to go down. You get a, a flood event, and it's going to catch enough debris and wash it out. So fences will buy you some time uh, in certain situations. It's just going to be one of those. Is, are they going to be cost effective? for the resource that you're trying to protect for a short period of time. So yeah, we get people that put fences up around all kinds of crops and they work for a while. But the other thing that really drives that bus for pigs to have the incentive to, to not respect the fence is going to be stressful conditions. If we get stressful conditions and, and they are limited in, in the resources that they have on the outside of that fence, they're going to do everything they can to find a way into that fence. The so, more you keep me again, out, the more just, I want in. <laughs> absolutely. Right, uh, right. Aaron, you mentioned pig brig. I, I, I need to even define what that is. What, what is that? Pig brig uh, is, the, is the, the trap itself is the only patented net trap system on the planet intended for ca catching pigs. So uh, pig brig is a trap system, and then pig brig, it, pig brig trap systems is the company. So basically the... The, the, the trap is the definition of our company and, uh, and it's a whole team environment. So the, the pig rig is, is uh, a trap system that can be easily deployed. It can be backpacked. It can use the existing trees to, to set up, or it can use posts that you would typically find in any livestock production, uh, location. So it's a, it's a system that we developed out of necessity on a project that we have that's ongoing in Guam where we're responsible for controlling non-native pigs in Guam in a jungle. And in the challenges of a jungle, one is there's no infrastructure. 
then the number two thing specific to Guam. And it's really what drove the, the, the nail home that we had to come up with something that was innovative and out of the box is in Guam, you cannot drive post or you can and and or you cannot dig post holes because of unex, unexploded ordnance still in the ground from World War II. So that you had to use the existing trees to be able to set the trap. And, and early on, yeah, we tried to use prefab metal panels to, to attach the trees. But the challenge with the prefab panel is that it didn't seal closely to the ground and the pigs could get their nose under it and go under the trap, uh, under those prefab panels. Well, with a, a, a net system, it conforms to any shape of the ground. Uh, we don't have to have level surfaces. And like I said, with the, with being in a jungle, we can fold that net up and backpack that net to wherever the pigs are and we can follow those pigs quickly to wherever they go to. So and, it was a, a necessity deal. And these are live traps? They, they are. Whenever we catch those pigs, it's the only true multi-catch trap that's out there because truly, if you look at the system, it's, it's, it's a 360-degree catch gate, if you really want to call it that, because pigs can come to that trap from any direction. The net is on the ground, and they just it simply um, hedges the natural tendency of pigs to root. So the net's on the ground, and as those pigs want to go into that net, they file in just by pushing under that net. Net slides up and over their back, slides down behind them. Many times they don't even realize they've been caught. And and they, with a continual catch, if you look at the way that pigs will cover a given landscape whenever they're feeding, you may have pigs over two, 300 yards in a given area feeding on whatever's available there. But one thing about pigs is that they're, already, they're always going to be led by a matriarchal female. Well, wherever she goes, the rest of them's going to go. So if you've got a system like what we have and you get those pigs to funnel in when they choose to, when they want to, we don't have to stay up and watch a camera to shut a catch gate. We let the pigs take care of their own. So, and as a matter of fact, like last night, this morning before, uh, shortly after I got up, I had a call from, from a, a, a gentleman that I work closely with in Georgia. And last night, right, just a little bit after dark, he had, he had eight pigs go into his trap decided you know what i'm gonna sleep the night i'm not gonna mess with them it's it's still early but i'm just gonna leave them there he got there this morning to the trap to clear the trap and he had 29 pigs oh. so whenever he went to bed he thought he had eight and he was he was happy with what he had but whenever he got there this morning he's got near 30 pigs and many of those were bred females so a win there to get rid of that leader uh, Absolutely. is there anything to do i mean you mentioned the the protein source I mean, are uh, these animals then are put down uh, or they're not processed? They're not. Is there any value that this thing can provide this wild animal? Well, the, the, the one thing is, is that we need to look at what the destruction is on a pig uh, as far as on an annual basis. Um, a lot of the states are putting those those numbers together. Texas and Oklahoma have already done that sometime back. I know Georgia's working on it. Florida's working on it and so forth. But the number that was that's been put out there by many states is that for every heart beating pig on the landscape, what level of damage are they causing? So for Texas and Oklahoma, the two that we have that's quick that's that's there now, Texas is seeing that pigs are causing about three hundred dollars in damage per animal per year. Oklahoma has that number set at three hundred and ninety dollars per animal per year. So whenever we think about what kind of incentives or advantages do we have? Well, if you didn't take care of some of those population numbers, what are you going to be losing out of your back pocket in damage from one year to the next? I understand where you're talking about, too, is like, OK, we've got a captured animal here. What are the other thoughts that we can do with this animal? 
And and that's going to be largely governed by what state law says you can do. So some state laws are pretty stringent that says that once that animal is in that trap, they have to be dispatched in that trap. Where other there's two or three states out there, three states out there, Texas, Oklahoma, and Florida do have abilities there for for captured live pigs to be transported alive, but only to approved locations. It's not that you can trap them at your place and bring them to my place and turn them loose. So they can only go to certain locations. The other big concern out there that we hear quite often from people is, well, why don't we make these, these, this, this huge protein source into the public food source? And, and so the number one guiding reason for that is it's not state inspected. So that pork is a wild pork. There's no processes in place for that to be state inspected. So it's very limited in where you can go with it. Uh, in Texas, there are two facilities in the state here that only process wild pig. And, and it's just like any other pro- product in those two facilities is where is the market availability to go with that meat? So wherever they can go, that's where they go. And that's all they process is wild pig. It's like any crop or a crop of plant or meat source. There is someone who basically in the promotion side goes and gets together 10 chefs and says, hey, you should cook with this. There's not right. uh, the wild delicacy. And, and see, Aaron, here uh, to our east in Illinois, they had started to that was one of the farther north points of the wild uh, of the Asian carp, the fish that would jump. Right. I know right. they had that problem in Missouri. They were trying to find ways to process that fish and and find a way into a kitchen somewhere. And as of now, I don't think it's been a real widespread thing. And it doesn't sound like the wild boar tastes any different. Well, and, and one of the things that I, that I tend to hedge on the side of humanity on this situation, and what I mean by that is you look at what the domestic pork industry is right now. It's not doing well. The, the pork, the domestic pork numbers are low as far as what those people that are out there depending on producing domestic pork to feed their families, to pay their bills and so forth. The, the numbers are just not good for them. So my the, the, the thing to keep in mind is that if we were to in, infuse that many pounds of wild pork into that domestic food source, how many more dollars would be we be taking away from that domestically produced pork? And again, those dollars are attached to families that have kids and have bills and have everything else. And by putting that out there, you're just going to be hurting that pork producer that's already trying to do everything they can to stay afloat. And that's in a heavy regulated industry. Those those confinements very. are very tight. They're trying to keep disease out. You have no idea what disease is in some of these wild pigs. Right, yeah. right, right. And that's one of those things. I mean, we know that there's they can potentially harbor diseases. But there is no way that you're going to look at an animal in front of you and say that animal has a disease or that animal does not. There's there's no way short of blood tests. You mentioned the several states here, Texas, Oklahoma, Florida, Georgia, all the how, what's the migration north like? Where where is this an animal that can survive my typical Midwest winter? Absolutely. Yeah. And what we'd, we'd laugh about, too, is that the occupation of wild pigs cover the country at 75 miles an hour. And what we mean by that is there is a huge challenge out there that law enforcement has with illegal transportation. With that pig being a wild, exotic species, with it being exotic, there's federal laws in place that says you can't cross state lines with that live animal. But what we see quite often is like where you're talking about in the Midwest is, a, is the, the, the number one example I use is is 
pretty much every week, I would get a call from somebody from the Midwest that is wanting to come to Texas or to Louisiana or to Georgia to hunt wild pigs because of the recreational fun that it is for them to do that. Well, whenever they come down to the South and they enjoy these mild winters that we have comparable to where you're at and they have fun and after after these pigs and whatnot, whenever it comes time to make that second trip, they don't want to drive 25 hours one way to go to hunt pigs. So what they do, and I get people calling all the time from the Midwest wanting to know where they can they can find pigs down here to transport back up north. So that's something that that's going to be a major, major concern for the for the Midwest and where you're at is illegal transportation. Because what we see in research is that the natural progression of pigs on their own is about eight to 18 miles a year. So depending on the area, they'll naturally move north somewhere between eight and 18 miles. They're not going to get to you real fast on their own unless there is an established population there that just bubbles out from that. That population establishment is going to be from that illegal transportation where you're at. Um, the other concern that, that there, the other thought that comes to mind as there is that you can it handle your winners. Well, one of the things to think about is which direction are the pigs going to come from? Okay. So yeah, you can have the pigs coming from the south at 75 miles an hour, but not far from you across in the Canadian border, they have pig issues there. So, and those, those pig, those numbers there can easily, can move just as easily. Now, what we say that that will somewhat slow that movement from the South to the North is a wildlife rule that's out there. That's that all wildlife freshmen learn is Bergman's rule. And in Bergman's rule, basically what it says is as the further you go North, the more, the larger body capacity you have, the shorter legs, the shorter ears, to keep that blood to the core of the body so you can handle colder weather. Well, if you look at the pigs that I have right here in the, in, in Southeast Texas, you're going to find an animal that's more tubular in shape, that's a finer bone, bigger ears, because pigs don't sweat. So that blood has to make it to the surface of the body to be able to, 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 to regulate temperature. Whereas if you took that pig that's in the South and you moved it up to where you're at in the Midwest, it's going to be a little bit tougher on them to, to be able to get an establishment there because of the body's shape and structure. But if you've got a mild winter like what you're talking about this year, they wouldn't have any trouble. Now, the concern would be, what about those big animals that are still a wild pig? They're still the same genetics, but through natural selection that are in Canada, bigger, more robust body, shorter legs that are built for handling the cold, they can move south a heck of a lot easier than what these pigs in the deep south can move north. So you've got to think about where they're going to come. They could come from both directions. So, uh, so yeah, y'all got a y'all got a, a slippery slope right there with where you're at because you've got plenty of agriculture there for them to use as a food source. You've got plenty of of other natural things that are in place that can they can hold those pigs. The only thing that's going to keep them from from establishing to the point that they are now is number one, the laws need to be proactive to prevent that from happening in the future. And then number two, we, you need to make sure that, that people are aware that the knowledge is out there of what these animals are going to do. Should they ever get their feet established in a given area? Once they're dug in, they're going to be tough to get rid of. And that's obvious. And I've watched so many videos of end of eight row harvest and, 30 animals come out. And I've seen videos, yes, where there's somebody at the right. end with a, a weapon trying to take out some of those animals, and they might only get half or a third. Right. So that's not always the most efficient answer, too. But 
there it, it is an answer. So, Aaron, we could do this. And I know <laughs> before we started rolling, we talked about, you know, what do we want to do in the future? I absolutely know I'm going to have a ton of questions from people uh, that have watched you this bet. that are going to have more. So if you're willing, Aaron, we will pick this up another time with some more questions Most and definitely. some more answers. You good with that? You bet. Yeah. Anything we can help in the meantime, give us a call. Pig Brig at, at 833-744-2744 or pigbrig.com. We'll, you'll talk to one of us. We're going to be there to answer the phones. And, and, and if you look it up on there and see anybody that's on our team page and specifically want to talk to anybody on that team page, just tell them when you call in, I want to talk to John or I want to talk to Aaron or I want to talk to Tony or Margaret. Then they're going to get you to those people. Those people. Sounds great. Aaron, thank you so very much for the time. Appreciate it. Thank you. Appreciate your time. New episodes of this podcast come out each and every Tuesday. Again, Please send an email to market to market at iowapbs.org if for any questions, follow up, things that you want to know about this topic of wild hogs. We'll bring Aaron back and have another conversation. Thank you for watching. We'll see you next Tuesday with a new episode as we come out each and every week. Bye bye.